0: Hallelujah. Fathers, we have prayed in song with your servant, David. We thank you that by the son of David, our prayer is answered, that Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary can create in us a new and clean heart. Lord, I pray this day that as your word is proclaimed, that the washing of the water, the proclamation, of your revelation by covenant to your people would wash away the sins that yet linger in our heart that would bring conviction and a consistency of faith and repentance. We pray, Lord, that you would make us more like you, change us from glory to glory, even by the means of grace this morning into the image of Christ our Lord. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation as we behold the truths that are written down for us in scripture and encourage our souls to consistently praise you and walk in light of this truth and to apply your word that we might be a light to others. We pray that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word and in the fruit following to the praise of your name, to the advancement of your kingdom, to the equipping of the saints and to the magnification of the glory, the honor, the majesty, the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. This morning, I pray that you would, with reverence, turn in your scriptures to Psalm 119, the last stanza, 22nd, corresponding with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Ta, verses 169 through 176. Ta, the trial of wandering, is the theme and title of our message this morning, and I aim this day in preaching to conclude our series on, on Psalm 119 by summarizing a couple of its great themes that are emphasized in, close, in closing as the psalmist brings his great song and hymn to a refrain, with the closing eight verses, all beginning with the letter Ta. We've been here some time and it has been quite the journey for us in our study, Uh, but we also note the journey motif of the psalm itself and recognizing that we're seeing something of a spiritual journey, witnessing something of a spiritual journal, if you will, of the author. And so it is encouraging and insightful to see how he closes this psalm, what words he uses as he brings to a crescendo what he has written in these 176 verses. So with your hearts in reverence to the Word of God, would you stand as you're able this morning and let us hear the Scriptures proclaimed to us this day under Ta, the Hebrew letter, the 22nd, Psalm one hundred nineteen, one sixty-nine through 176. Here is the Word of God. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your Word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your Word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant for I do not forget your commandments. Thus closes Psalm 119. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, congregation today concludes 22 months. I am sure we missed one or two. Thus, about exactly two years of once a month preaching through Psalm 119. Today is our final sermon from this great hymn. Each stanza, as we have noted along the way of eight verses, corresponds to a Hebrew alphabet letter in the original tongue, comprising the greatest of all acrostic psalms, and I would extend that praise further, perhaps the most extraordinary hymn in all history, the longest of all songs recorded in the scriptures, and I would say the most intricate and symmetrical in its patterned glory. Even the most gifted of church fathers, have found its scope and depth of Psalm 119, that is, uh, to be intimidating. Just looking upon its great depths causes one to shrink back, saying, I'm not worthy of plumbing it or understanding. Lord, grant me grace to find my bearings as I approach this incredible work. Even the great Augustine said of this song, quote, as far as I have been able, as far as I have been aided by the Lord. I have treated throughout and expounded this great psalm, a task which more able and learned expositors have performed or will perform better. If a great uh, mind of the faith and one of the church fathers responsible for the advancement of Christianity had such a humble attitude towards the greatness of Psalm 119, how much more an obscure country preacher like myself, and thus I relate to his words and more. Certainly, this is a worthy confession of any minister, given the gravity of Psalm 119. Too often, we take the Scriptures for granted and treat them as casual and light because they're so available to us. But I enjoy pausing in my own studies to reorient my soul to the glory and the amazing beauty and exclusivity of the Scriptures. And I pray in preaching that that attitude is conveyed That is my goal anyway, and I hope that your heart rings with that truth as well. That when we read the Scriptures, we don't just read a little devotional pick-me-up each morning, but we read the very Word of God, recorded in spectacular form, in amazing ways, including this 176-verse song. We've discovered many uh, of the patterned intricacies in this uh, song of worship along the way, including the presentation of trial in all 21 stanzas following the first. Each stanza presents a challenge the author of the song is honest about. And for each of these challenges, we find the great theme of this song over and over again emphasized, the word of God is absolutely sufficient for every trial of life, this side of glory. The word of God is absolutely up to the task, It is enough, it is all we need for every trial of life, this side of glory. This is the repeated refrain, the reliance on divine revelation, the word of God as far as it was delivered authoritatively and infallibly to the author was his hope and stay, his crown for assurance and security, his rescue in the day of trouble. Even in the trial of wandering which the psalmist addresses in the final stanza, Comparing himself to a lost sheep, he has found the Word of God can guide him home. As the psalmist matures in his walk with the Lord and in his prayer life, proceeding along this sort of journey motif through this passage, we find that he doesn't grow in self-centered confidence, and the song doesn't conclude even with a note of triumph. But rather, as he brings his hymn to a close, he is expressing humility still, and pleas for mercy. And these cries only grow stronger as he acknowledges his own propensity to stray from the straight and narrow. Sometimes growing in spiritual maturity and understanding is realizing with greater clarity the perfections of God's Word, and then recognizing with greater clarity how far we fall short of them. And I think the psalmist can relate to this sentiment as he's grown in his understanding, appreciation, and love for the Lord, he's also grown more aware of his shortcomings in that regard. Along the way, he has referenced primary covenant revelation with recurring terms. and This is one of those patterns that we see. It's inescapable. Over 170 times he has mentioned, and these are just an order of appearance, law, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, word, promise, judgments, and justice, just to name 11 synonyms that I've highlighted for the Word of God or covenant revelation throughout the song. These last two, judgments and justice, are unique mentions, and if you include them, by my count, I've highlighted precisely 176, as far as I can tell, references to the covenant revelation or the Word of God. And that in itself is sort of interesting as there are 176 verses. Thus we have something like or close to a reference to the Word of God for every verse in this song. From his first reference to the law of God in verse 1 to his vow to remember the Lord's commandments in Psalm 1 or in verse 176, the author of Psalm 119 extols the majesty of God revealed via or through his covenant. To his elect. And thus we consider his closing words today in the final refrain. And here's a heading for you. Primary categories or themes of Psalm 119, magnified by crescendo. Do you know what crescendo is? Kids, how many have been to a fireworks show? What happens at the end? We call that what? At the end of a fireworks show, they have what? The finale, or some say grand finale. So a fireworks show is sort of like a song that builds or a dynamic piece of music like an orchestra. And it's sort of a shape to it. There's a direction. And they bring you sort of subtly along. There might be uh, ebbs and flows in this glory, you know, this kind of display of light and, and so forth in the skies. But towards the end, it reaches a crescendo. We call it the grand finale where our senses are blown away and we reach this high point and this closure, and this celebration, and all of these explosions, and so forth. So as Psalm 119 is brought to a crescendo, we might expect something similar, an explosive, triumphant, and powerful emphasis. But instead of this, it's almost a surprise the Psalmist closes by comparing himself to a sheep that is lost and is gone astray and needs to be drawn back into the fold by the Word of God. That is to say, the crescendo of the song exalts by repeated reference the word of God in contrast to the great humility of the one who is desperate for its soul. And so this is a great theme and category throughout the entire song. And today I have two major points today. Verses 169 through 172 give us the voice of the sheep, if you will. The psalmist comparing himself to a lost lamb, is crying out in these four verses. And then 173 through 176, the theme there featured is the hand of the shepherd. And you can trace that theme all through the song. We have the voice of the sheep and the hand of the shepherd. The hand of the shepherd and his implements. Psalm 23 comes to mind. We'll reference it later. His rod and his staff, they comfort and guide me. First of all, this great theme or category, magnified by crescendo, the voice of the sheep, 169 through 172. Notice this reference to the voice in the term cry, 169. Under Taw, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. The heart and anguish expressed throughout this song in light of this closing metaphor of sheep could be perhaps compared to the bleeding plea or the desperate cry of the lost and otherwise helpless sheep. So animals, especially those who are not predators and are often the victim of you know, the stronger and more able and uh, you know, lion or bear or something like that, something with teeth and that rules the forest and we call them the king of the jungle. You have that category of beasts, but you have the more vulnerable, the weak, and the easily victimized category of animal, and that would be something like a sheep. A sheep or a rabbit, when they're in distress, will give a sort of pitiful, it's a distressed sound, and for those who are not aware of, of what it is, it might even sound disturbing to their ears. But imagine if you're a shepherd, and you're looking for your lost sheep, and that bleeding cry is heard over the next hillside, and you lean in, and you cup your ear, And you hear that baying sound in the distance. For the shepherd who is looking for his lost sheep, that is a welcome sound. It's the sound of desperation, yet it's the sound of soon coming reunion to the victim lamb that was lost and the one with the power to rescue. Soon they will be united and the bleeding distressful cry will be met by the strong arms and capable arms of the shepherd. And under his great care and protection, this bleeding sheep crying out will return to the fold to be guarded, to be protected, to be fed, to be nurtured, wounds to be dressed, and oil to be poured out by the one who cares for him. This is the voice of the sheep. This is the heart of anguish expressed in this song throughout. In light of this closing metaphor, we see this bleed we can almost hear this bleeding or supplication of the lost and otherwise helpless lamb, a distressing and even pitiful sound to others, but music, music to the ears of the shepherd whose intent to rescue, love, protect, and provide for his own. When you go to the Lord in your most weak and weary times in desperate cries of prayer, I'm sure your soul to yourself Looking in the mirror, so to speak, of your own soul's state of mind or state of being, you think of yourself as distressed and pitiful. And that sound hardly sounds like worship to you. But to the sound of the great shepherd crying out to him in your desperate hour of need, that bleeding sound, that desperate cry is music to his ears. Our good shepherd longs to answer our cries. A cry for understanding. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. The psalmist refers to the Lord, all caps, I trust in your translation, by using that covenant name, Yahweh. We reference this a lot because it's a repeated note in scripture. Yahweh is the revealed covenant name that goes all the way back to that personal revelation to Moses, who is then to proclaim that revelation to all God's people. Yahweh is the steadfastly loving, all-sufficient covenant keeper. He's the one who makes promises to his own, will never fail in keeping them, and has all the power and means to do so by by virtue of the sum of his being and needs nothing else. This is our great shepherd. Hear my cry, O Lord. Hear my cry, Yahweh. Hear my prayer. No doubt, in closing... The psalmist has in mind not just this stanza, verse you know, 169 through 176, the final eight verses, but likely his entire song. Hear my cry. Hear all of Psalm 119. Hear all of my acrostic prayer that I offer to you. And I offer it to you as a sacrifice of praise to the steadfastly loving covenant keeper. Hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. Not just this, this stanza, but the entire epic song. He is submitting this entire, this entire body of work, this entire hymn, carefully written down, orchestrated, and then offered to the Lord as an offering, as a sacrifice of praise upon the altar of communion with the Lord. And the Lord is so worthy of an offering such as this. So it's beautiful when the cries of the distressed meet the answer and hope of the great shepherd. And the appeal is answered with the word of God as a sufficient means to ground and to guide him through his time of need. He prays and cries for understanding according to the word of God. Think of a lost sheep, confused, disoriented, lacking understanding. Perhaps they're caught in bush in a bush and tangled and cannot re, uh, set themselves free. And as night begins to fall, every snap of a stick in the distance. Every distant growl, every howl of a wolf is a distressing sound. They don't know how close or how far away they are. Their fear gives way to panic. And in panic, there's no understanding. Just a sort of desperate panic that loses control and is thrashing about. And the more the little sheep thrashes, the more tangled he gets in the brambles. And so we can relate to this metaphor and picture And our cry, our hope for understanding in that circumstance is not going to come from our own efforts. The more we thrash around, the more confused, disoriented, and uh, trapped we feel and we are. But understanding instead comes according to the Word of God. The Word of God is over us. It's above us. It's independent of us. It is something that stands alone in spite of our confused state, in spite of the complicated factors we find ourselves in, our limited perspective, and the great trial we may face. This is a message we so need these days. Why? Because there are so many competing voices, false gods, promising understanding. But they promise understanding according to something else than the Word of God. I was talking to several, a couple of you this week. I had sort of a thought developing in my mind. We live in this information age, and access to information at such great lengths is, is quickly becoming a false god, as already a false god for many consider this if we're not careful in the day in which we live where answers to almost every question are available on the internet we might think to ourselves well i'll be at peace and confident in my question until i've accessed all available information on the topic but here's the problem you only have so much capacity you are a finite you are not god god has not created you to be omniscient to know all things i think the internet In many ways, or access, speed of access to knowledge represents for many a sort of lust for the omniscience. It's a promise that you can be as God. You can know virtually all things, or all things worth knowing, or all things that you need to know. So now consider this. If you defer confidence, peace, and then you remain anxious until you find out everything there is to know about any particular thing that might be troubling you, will you ever be at peace? No. You've just condemned yourself to a lifestyle of complete and utter anxiety. And this is one contributing factor among many that might help explain why we're the most mentally health-ridden generation in modern times. Because we're not content to defer to a power and authority outside ourselves, but we believe the lie that we have access to help ourselves and a sufficient source of information at our fingertips, on our phone, on the internet, and otherwise. But I'm here to tell you, the internet ultimately does not bring understanding. The quest for human knowledge, you can be as God, knowing all pertinent and appropriate things, does not bring understanding. Better to saturate our souls with the Word of God. His precepts, His commandments, His testimonies, His statutes, His rules, His promise. Why do you think the psalmist refers to these over and over again? Because they are His repeated meditation. Upon what do our souls fix their attention? What compels us to study and to search and to learn and to pursue things that we might have assurance, growth and peace and salvation? Well, it must be and can only be the word of God if we are truly to be at rest in our souls We must set aside, repent of any other false gods that say, I can give you understanding according to this, according to that, according to experts, according to access to information, whatever the claim might be. And instead, return with the psalmist to this, understanding is always and only true and worthy of pursuing if it is according to the word of God. A cry for understanding. This is the voice of the sheep. And this is a specific understanding. It's understanding that's based upon a foundation that is steadfast, immovable, never changes, and is always sufficient, the word of God. Secondly, the voice of the sheep is echoed in this plea for deliverance, a cry for understanding and a plea for deliverance. What is a plea? It's a desperate, I asked this question in family worship last night, and one of the kids said begging. That's a good synonym. A plea, to plea is to beg. It's an earnest request. Please, it's a desperate cry. It's a cry that comes knowing that you don't have ground to negotiate, but you are at the mercy of the one whom you are begging to help. A plea for deliverance. 170, let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Once again, that according to language indicates the confidence upon which this prayer and song is based. The word of God not his own efforts not the promises of anyone short of Yahweh. But instead, the revelation of God revealed in his word to his servant is the ground upon which he pleads, he begs, his desperate cry. The sheep that's lost and bleeding, bleeding out, needs a deliverance. Most, most assume, as I've studied this psalm with some companion commentary, that David is the author, right? The more I dug into it, the more convinced of this I remain. So if we think of David's own experience, it's helpful to illustrate verse 170 and many other portions of the psalm. What wolves, if you will, threatened David through the course of his life? So these are example occasions where he might plea, offer his plea to the Lord for deliverance. In Let me turn you to one confession of David that I think Corresponds so well to this psalm. It is in First Samuel 17. So kids, um, what was that giant's name that David faced in the field? Goliath. Goliath, that's right. Would you guys describe Goliath as a bad guy, as a wolf? And does that kind of picture make sense that David, a young shepherd boy, is kind of like a sheep and Goliath is like a beast? I think that uh, picture, that metaphor applies. Well, where is David to find confidence in the face of this? In uh, 1 Samuel 17:37, let's see if this is the right text. Yes, David said, and he's responding to Saul, who thinks it's a little ridiculous that a shepherd boy is going to pick a fight with this great giant. And David said, "The Lord who delivered me—notice the language—delivered me from the paw of the paw of the." will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. There are times in David's life where he needed the deliverance of the Lord. As a young shepherd boy with crude weapons at his side, a sling, a stone, a rod, a staff, whatever he might have, staring down a lion who has, sees this great buffet, an all-you-can-eat buffet of sheep just beyond this little boy. If he could just get past that boy, it's a feeding frenzy for him and all his lion buddies. Likewise, the bear. And so here, David cries out for deliverance, O Lord, and his youthful faith, deliver me from the paw of the lion. And the Lord did. He killed lions in his youth. O Lord, deliver me from the paw of the bear, from the towns of the predator, from the teeth of this beast who would sink, who would soon, uh, just as soon eat me as can get at this entire flock I'm protecting. And so the Lord did, delivered him from the bear. And on the basis of the Lord's testimony of deliverance to his son, has called an anointed one, sooner or later, Samuel comes and anoints him and says, you will be the king, and David will face more wolves still. And here he is on the field, approaching this field, as this giant stands between him and the kingdom. This giant threatens to eliminate his kingdom, so that he will never assume the throne, there's nothing there to rule. This giant also represents a threat to him, in that he's picking a fight with this great warrior. So he steps up in faith in a plea to the Lord who had delivered him from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And then you guys know the rest of the story. Likewise, God delivered him from this wolf, this Philistine. So this plea for deliverance in David's life was answered many times, but he also found himself facing many wolves. But what does David's legacy teach us? And what does uh, Psalm 119 emphasize? That the word of God is sufficient. That anointing, I've called and appointed you to be my king, to be a picture and a type of a Messiah to come. David can make his plea on the basis of God's word, the anointing of Samuel himself, the uh, message of covenant promise from from Nathan later, I will make of you a house. David could cry and, and make his plea for deliverance on this basis and have the assurance that his prayer would be heard. According to God's word, Revealed in the anointing of Samuel and the covenant, and covenant proclaimed by Nathan. So David stepped forth in his plea of deliverance in this heart. The Lord, who is powerful to deliver and save, has rescued me from the lion and the bear, and so he will rescue me from enemies. There are later wolves, however, that David faced in some ways were more formidable or formidable in different ways. Think of the wolf of his own sin. Here, he needed a different kind of deliverance and rescue, the mercy of God to save his soul. When David was threatened by the consequences, eternal consequences of sin for murder and adultery, he found that his pleas of deliverance were answered as well. But David needed a savior that was not his own arm or strength, and he needed a, a weapon to deliver him that was not a slinger stone or rod or staff in his hand. No, it was the cross upon which the son of David was nailed that was the instrument to spare him from the wolf of his own sin that showed it, reared its ugly head in the Uriah and Bathsheba incident where he was guilty of deception, murder, lying, adultery, so, so many things. Later on, David faces even more formidable, or likewise formidable wolves in a different category as well, his own son seeking to usurp the throne. Could you imagine that? Your own son declaring war on you, to take away the anointed position of authority. God's word again was sufficient. Yet you can kind of see as David's life continues, the nature of these wolves is more complicated, more intense, more personal. And thus he may have felt at any given moment toward the close of his tenure as king, to the close of his life, I have gone astray like a sheep. Seek your servant. Do not forget your commandments. Even my sons have turned against me and my own sin is horrible. Yet... His pleas for deliverance were heard. And God delivered him and gave him by the power of the gospel alone, by the power of redemption alone, on the basis of the coming Messiah, a heart after himself as he repented and turned to the Lord. This is the voice of the sheep, a cry for understanding, a plea for deliverance. And then lips offered in praise. Verse 171, my lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. Lips and tongue are both referenced. And these, of course, are instruments of worship to the Lord. God has given you lips for a reason and a tongue for a reason. And poetically, the Bible often use these two references to human anatomy as instruments that are to be offered as in the service of the Lord and His glory. As your lips are formed around words that exalt, how amazing the verse you studied last night was, as your lips are formed around the words that you've memorized from singing songs here in worship as you're walking, you know, about your daily or going about your daily activities through the week. What are you doing? What are you doing while you're being obedient to the vision cast for us in Psalm 119:171. My lips will pour forth praise as we consider how powerful and awesome is the Lord and what he has done for us and the sum of all he has revealed and accomplished, even his promises, statutes, his rules, his testimonies, and his commands. is intended that a wellspring of joy be perpetually overflowing with praise from the lips that he has fashioned upon your face for the purpose of giving him honor and giving him glory. Memorizing scripture is a way to apply this text. Singing the songs that we sing here, um, singing the scriptures. Uh, the word out loud, uh, listening to the word read in your hearing, letting your mind and heart voice, utter an amen as so be it, and an affirmation to what God has revealed, such that your lips begin to be a fountain, pouring forth more and more praise, for the Lord teaches you his statutes. The believer's confession ought to continually spring forth in a fountain of worship to the Lord. We uh, referenced recently from Jude's exhortations, the difference, of course, between the ungodly and the holy. And as we see this difference, we find that the ungodly are those devoid of the Spirit, but on the other hand, the holy are those who are indwelt by the Spirit, and as such, that they are mindful of the mercy extended to them, and they extend mercy to others. They save others by snatching them from the flame, and they hate even the garments stained by the flesh. What does a person... Who is mindful of these things sound like in his thoughts, meditations, in his expressions of joy, while lips overflowing in praise? And what inspires the psalmist to offer to the Lord praise? It is his statutes. I had this thought this week. I was having a hard time thinking of a worship song. I'm sure one exists, perhaps several, that is inspired by the statutes of the Lord. What are the statutes of the Lord? It's fixed points of moral order, it is his truth and what is right and what is wrong that is laid out in Scripture. Statutes like rulings are similar. There's two ways to think about it. One is the standard of righteousness laid out, the thou shalt not, or thou shalt in God's Word. That would be a statute. And then a statute also could be a ruling. It could be the Lord, or it could be the, the, the authority, the judicial authority making a ruling in a specific case by holding the circumstance accountable, to that statute and then exercising his judgment accordingly. So, when Solomon is uh, exercising wisdom and ruling before him and, and rules in the case, and he uses basically a precursor, or, or he uses the Ten Commandments of God's law, or like Moses sets up this whole judicial system in the wilderness, and they're hearing these cases before the Lord, these are things that are inspiring. They ought to form some of the themes of our worship songs, the statutes of the Lord which teach us His ways, which reveal to us His holiness, which preach to us and proclaim to us His character. And they give us the standards by which to judge other things that make claims, um, and sometimes in the face of the Lord's authority, these statutes, these rulings, these standards of righteousness, these um, uh, fixed points of moral authority, are worthy sources of inspiration and praise. Therefore, the psalmist's lips were filled with them. And we certainly see this in Psalm 119. What is the voice of the sheep? It's a cry for understanding. It's a plea for deliverance. It's lips and praise after that sheep is rescued. And, you know, perhaps the tone of its bleeding changes. As the comforting arms of the shepherd reassure him on his way back to the fold. And his lips thus, as it were, exalt in praise and thankfulness. In this peaceful reassurance in this sigh of contentment as he has found his security and assurance in the lord his shepherd tongue in song 172 the voice of the sheep also sounds like tongue in song my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right and likewise in parallel form here again psalm 119 positively demonstrates the relationship between a high view of god's word and the depth and sincerity of worship. That relationship is inescapable between a high view of God's word and a depth and sincerity in worship. Now, some people try to you know, make up, or there are counterfeits for depth and sincerity, emotionalism, uh, the feeling of the music, or an experience that I had, kind of this sense of being caught up and swept away, but all of these are subjective and must be held accountable to what truly is the measure of depth. And according to the psalmist, that is the prese- or the commandments, in this case, of the Lord. I will sing, or his word. That is to say, in worship, a truly deep and profound and sincere and meaningful worship song is an expression that is first biblical, and secondly, it is overflowing in praise. First biblical, then emotional, you could say. It is right and proper to express to the Lord emotions as an instrument of worship, but these are not to be expressed to him or considered deeper, profound, or sincere, independent of what God has objectively stated in his word. Oh, how I love your law. Oh, how I seek your statutes. Now, people seek for many things. People love a million things. But is that expression of love and seeking after something a truly A sincere expression of worship, well, not to the Lord, might be the worship of an idol. The psalmist recognizes in 172 that the cry of a true sheep, that is in relationship with the shepherd, he uses his tongue to sing the word of God, for all God's commandments are right. There is a relationship between our view of God's word, depth and sincerity in worship. If we entertain reservations about the word of God, By that same measure, we will be restrained in our worship of Him. If we have doubts or distance from the Word of God, then our worship will also have a distant and dissonant sound. It will not have that unrestrained, glorifying sound of legitimate and sincere depth and expression of praise. The extravagant expressions of praise throughout Psalm 119 is the fruit of a soul wholly submitted to the word of God. And this is so obvious as 176 references or so to the word of God time and again anchor the confession of the psalmist. Psalm 119 is the fruit of a soul, wholly submitted to the word of God and therefore is a good example for us of the voice of the sheep. Second major point this morning, the hand of the shepherd. This is another category and theme magnified by crescendo or by the close of the psalm, the refrain, the last words. Verses 169, 172, we hear the voice of the sheep. 173, 176, he defers to the hand of the shepherd. 173, let your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Notice the things that he is crying out for can only be supplied if the Lord intervenes. He needs divine help. The hand of the shepherd, divine help. 173, let your hand be ready to help me. This language of arm or hand associated with the Lord is common in Scripture. It's a metaphor to help us understand that the Lord has real power and will to intervene and to save and to rescue. We went over this last night, but properly speaking, of course, we know that God is a spirit, and as such, as referencing his spiritual nature. He does not have a literal hand. He does not have a physical arm. So what does the Bible mean to convey in this? Well, this is what's called, and forgive this technical language, an anthropomorphism. Anthro referring to man, morphism like something else. So God is compared to aspects of our human experience to help us understand Him. And this is glorious because this is God stooping low to what we otherwise wouldn't understand to help us Little children, so to speak, spiritually, uh, understand that He is powerful and He will move on our behalf. So what is the hand of the Lord according to Scripture? I'll venture a definition. Hand, sovereign intervention. So, the Lord in charge, intervening and acting. Sovereign intervention according to God's will, established and revealed in covenant. What is the hand of the Lord? Sovereign intervention according to His will established and revealed in covenant. In this case, the Lord's steadfast love is expressed to his people in the covenant of grace. That is, the psalmist has a relationship based on grace with the Lord. He's referred to the hand of the Lord back in verse 73. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. He's come to understand that the Lord in his sovereign intervention according to his will, established and revealed his creative power, even in his own existence. Your hand has knit me together, the psalmist says in another place, formed me in my mother's womb. Your hand, the sovereign intentions of the Lord, according to his covenant, is responsible for all creation. The Lord is seen even in the early pages of Genesis as forming, as it were, Adam himself from the clay and then breathing into him life that he might be a spiritual being, of matter, and of the immaterial. That which is made in the image of God shares this likeness to its potter, its creator. The Lord with His hand fashions and forms us as a potter comes to dried out broken clay, softens it, places it back on the wheel, and then intentionally, according to His covenant, sanctifies us into a beautiful vase that is worthy of Him and His presence." This is the divine help, the hand of the shepherd that the psalmist cries out for. His steadfast love revealed to his people according to covenant, that is his will to save. Consider an example of this in context in Joshua chapter 4. You can turn there with me if you wish. Here again, the hand of the Lord is referenced in the history and in the testimony of the people as they are led out of Egypt, now under the administration of Joshua, into the promised land. Joshua 4.1 When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from among the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests stood, feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, and he appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up uh, each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. So As they're doing this, they're recognizing that the hand of the Lord has intervened. Later, verse 6 This may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? You shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the covenant and it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Joshua said to them, pass on, verse 5, before the Ark of the Lord into the midst of the Jordan. And with these stones and this sign and this action, what are they recognizing? The hand of the Lord, sovereign intervention, according to God's will, established and revealed in covenant. Later in verses 19 through 24, as they obey his words, they set these 12 stones. In verse 21, he reiterates to them, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So there we see an example of the hand of the Lord, destroying the enemies, drying up the Red Sea, parting the Jordan to make safe passage for the people of God and then collapsing the waters on the enemies and then writing this testimony down such that today this story is spread and understood and heard this world over. And whether or not not hearts are softened to realize, nevertheless, the testimony is there that the hand of God in saving his people and judging his enemies is not to be trifled with his hand is not too short to save. He can move a sea aside to save you. Perhaps he's moved the sea of your side, uh, 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 the sea of your sin aside is a way to look at it. If you are a believer in this room today, you are drowning in your trespasses and sins. You're an enemy of the Lord. You're under his wrath and judgment until God moved aside by his great hand, the waters that would otherwise drown you. And then baptism pictures this. He passes you safely in the ark, Jesus Christ, through the waters of judgment unto the promised land of eternal life on the other side. And for those in Christ, we have crossed the Jordan of our sin, as it were. We have crossed the Red Sea of the judgment we deserved. And God has done this by his mighty hand, his hand of intervention according to his will, established and revealed in covenant. The hand of the shepherd, divine help. Secondly, lawful salvation, 174, back in our text in Psalm 119. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Briefly on this point, lawful salvation and confessing the law of God as his delight. The psalmist vows not to pursue what he prays for by unlawful means. This is important because, think of that picture of the desperate sheep bleeding and crying out for salvation in a state of desperation is natural for us to keep all options on the table. I've said this before. Let me repeat because it's a theme so central to Psalm 119. A crisis does not justify breaking the law of God. Lawful salvation. I long for your salvation O Lord and your law is my delight. We're in a bad way as a society and I mean, this is a in kind of an instant application. And promises for hope to escape the inevitable are going to be offered, especially as we ramp up for another political season, by all kinds of false God claims. But analyze them according to the Word of God. Is the law of God upheld in this promise of hope, this promise of help, in this promise of intervention, this problem of saving America in the 11th hour? A crisis never justifies breaking the law of God. It is better to die and enter into the arms of the Lord lawfully and in right standing with Him than it is, to uh, be saved in the short term by people who transgress His law, but uh, do a disservice in their testimony, and in the end, if they don't repent and turn for Him, prove to be no salvation at all. What would it profit a man to gain the world by unlawful means, but to lose his soul? The word of the Lord is more important than life. It is better than life. The psalmist constantly echoes this in Psalm 119. It's better than treasure. It's better than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. It's more desirable, it's more valuable, it's more powerful than anything lesser in our short-sighted unbelief. In the deception in which we sometimes live, in the desperation of our trial, sometimes we're interested in hearing a promise of salvation that might violate the word of God. Let us with this almost reject this kind of thing and instead vow to trust ourselves to the hand of the shepherd alone. His divine help according to his covenant and his lawful salvation according to his word. 175, eternal life. Again, the hand of the shepherd, divine help according to his covenant, a lawful salvation, trusting him in his perfect ways and time, even if it involves suffering in the meantime. Thirdly, eternal life, something that only the great shepherd can provide. Only the hand of God can answer this prayer. 175, let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. The sheep is crying out for the hand of the shepherd to offer unto him life for his soul. This can only be eternal life. If the answer of life for the soul is to be his, that means he will live forever. A prayer presupposing life everlasting, a life surviving the finite confines of this fleshly existence, you may slay me, yet will I serve him, Job says. And the testimony of believers is that though for a time this physical body succumbs to the grave, it will be resurrected in due course, and our soul is immutable. It cannot be killed it can, or invincible. It cannot be destroyed. And the destiny of our body and soul is anticipated by the psalmist as he trusts himself to the hand of God. And note the visions of glory throughout the scriptures which reinforce His words. Remember in Isaiah 6, the seraphim, those special heavenly creatures whose purpose and existence is fully realized and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this morning, our worship text, Revelation 14, prophesies that we will soon join them as we and those blood-washed robes stand before the throne and as a voice of the sound of many waterfalls Sing to the Lord the praises he deserves. On that day, we will have realized what was paid for, the full manifest blessing of the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. And enjoying that in heaven and the new heavens and new earth, the eternal life secured for us by the hand of our great shepherd, we will then join all of the saints in song, singing of the lamb that was slain. You'll note if you study that text on your own time, that there's sort of a turning of the tables. We, like lost sheep, cry out for salvation. But there, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, with crowns on their head, presumably that they've already cast in front of His throne for worship, who do they worship? The Lamb. They worship the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who became a sheep, so to speak. Why? So that He could be slaughtered in our place so that sheep who wander and are prone to stray, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The only way the hand of the Lord could save the prone to wander sheep, the vulnerable and subject to all of the predatory influences of this fallen world in his own heart is if God himself took on flesh and became that sacrificial lamb to be slaughtered in our place. That is to say, because Jesus became a sheep slaughtered in our place, then we have hope in the hand of the great shepherd to gather us up and to bring us home. In closing, the Psalmist celebrates this wilderness rescue. He cries out for it in faith. one hundred seventy six. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The hand of the shepherd expressed in divine help a lawful salvation, eternal life, and wilderness rescue. He concludes on a note of humility, as we've said, rather than triumph, triumph, what will restore the wandering soul to the fold? What are the rod and staff that God might use to guide him, to comfort him all the way back to the flock, all the way home? Psalm 23, a great companion text, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What are the characteristics of a sheep that might well apply to the vulnerability of the psalmist's soul? Well, certainly, a few of you have sheep in the audience here, and this is my stab at it. You might add a few, but... What characterizes sheep? Are they not vulnerable? Are they not weak? Are they not sometimes fearful and undiscerning? Are they not like other herd animals, sometimes manipulated by the flock? Are they not easy prey for many beasts, greater and stronger than them? We likewise are sheep, like sheep who have gone astray, can be vulnerable, weak, undiscerning, and fearful in the state of danger, easily manipulated by the world around us and by the herd mentality the sinfulness of our day. Spiritually speaking, sheep are not easy prey, listen, only insofar as they are submitted to the good shepherd. This bleeding sheep, when will he know he's safe? When the arms of the shepherd encircle him, untangle him from the bramble, and bring him back home. Only then is he safe from the greater beasts when he is in the arms of the good shepherd. We like sheep have gone astray, and we... Are easy prey, unless we, likewise, are in the arms of the Good Shepherd. We are not easy prey insofar as we are submitted to the Good Shepherd. Submitted to what? Submitted to His tools to guide us home. What is His rod and His staff? Is it not His law? Is it not His testimonies? How about His ways, His precepts, and His statutes? His commandments, His rules, His word, His promise, His judgments, and His justice. All these references repeated over and over again. When we recognize that we are lost sheep, but but, but for these, we would be lost forever. But God has used these things, his word, to guide us, to guard us home into the arms of the good shepherd. And there, we feel the reassuring presence, safe from greater prey, because our shepherd is greater still. Here and only here will we experience wilderness rescue, when the hand of the shepherd guides us home according to his word. In closing, Baron Bouchier, or Bouchier, I don't know, someone who knows French better than me, like my wife, might be able to confirm the pronunciation. He said this in Psalm 119, I do not think that there could possibly be a more appropriate conclusion of such a psalm as this. He goes on, What an insight in our poor and wayward hearts does this verse give us, Not merely unable, not merely liable to wander, but ever-wandering. Then he closes, but at the same time, what a prayer does it put in our mouths? Seek thy servant, I am thine, save me. Let us close with that same prayer. Father, we pray that you would seek us, your servants. We are yours and that you have died for us. Every believer in the sound of this this message, save us. We thank you that we have the, the assurance of salvation in the death of your son. We thank you that you reinforce us to our souls through the means of grace. We thank you that this has been pictured in our experience of late in baptism. We thank you, Lord, for the arms of the good shepherd, reaching even us, prone to wander. Lord, I pray if there are any wandering this morning, that they would love your rod and staff, that you would find them in the brambles and bring them home. Would you bring them home by your word, by your statutes, by your commandments? Would you guide them to safety by your precepts, your laws, and your rules? Would you gather them into your strong arms and spare them from the wolves? that they might join us here, worshiping and praising you and trusting the hand of the shepherd. Oh, here's the voice of the sheep that we may sing with the psalmists and echo the praise. We have gone astray and we do not forget your commandments. You have found us. Your hand has been ready to help. We long for your salvation, yet our soul lives to praise you. Your rules have helped me. In the name of Jesus, amen.